I just need to take care of some business. Give me a second, Mike. Yeah, you're in trouble. No. <laughs> Okay, we have been uh, going through the book of Revelation. We're going to be doing that this morning. So I want to, uh, if you want to um, find Revelation, last book of the Bible, very easy to find. Uh, Revelation chapter 12, we'll, um, we'll be reading in a couple minutes. Wanna, I want to pray and then, uh, then move on. Father, thank you so much that you keep your promises, and so we can be confident that um, you made a promise to be present when your people are together, and here we are, so we trust that here you are as well. And, and I am, and we are all grateful. Uh, nobody here gets up early on a Sunday morning to hear from me. We get up to meet with you and to hear from you. So thank you for your presence. God, as a teacher, and I suspect as most teachers do, we have this burden to be faithful and truthful and accurate with your word, with the Bible. So God, I thank you that I can trust you to be at work when we're talking about your word. God, I thank you that I can trust you that if in any way I get off track or say something that is my idea and it is not from you, I, I'm grateful that I can trust that through your spirit, you guard us and you will guard anybody here from being influenced the wrong way if I say something that isn't just true. On the other hand, God, even in my own life, I know how you've taken truth and you invade my soul and my mind and you're in this lifelong process of transforming me as I interact with truth, with your word. So thank you. And God, I trust that you'll do that for all of us who are here this morning that you'll find ways to take what we talk about and change us, especially, Father, as we, we head towards communion and a remembrance of what that means, what you are accomplishing on the cross. God, thank you for the opportunity we'll have to reflect and think about ourselves in light of the cross, and I pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. So how many of you, how many of you in the last, say, the last 10, well, since 9-11 have flown? Uh, so almost everybody, I figured that kind of. So if you've been at an airport in the last 15 years or so um, since 9-11, you know that there is a constant message you hear um, on the airport. They're constantly warning you about do not leave your baggage unattended, right? Just over and over and over. And we all know why. Uh, we all know why, and it's a kind of a sad reminder. Interestingly, I don't know if anybody else, have, have any of you ever seen unattended baggage and what happened? Twice now um, in, in an airport, I've seen unattended baggage um, and you know the security starts arriving and both times somebody who was probably on a potty break you know came running back and saw the security surrounding their bag and in the nick of time saved their bags from being blown up by airport security somewhere <laughs> um, so uh, if you read your e-news that we sent out um, you know if you read it this week you know that uh, the, the, there's a pharisaical side to me kind of the legalistic side of me and um, I am kind of, um, I, am, I am a carry-on baggage sheriff, uh, or at least I would like to be. Um, I, the, I would like to be able to be the guy, I'd love to, to stand at the departure gate. And have any of you ever seen those, they have those little boxes that are supposed to test whether your bag fits in. And I would love to just stand there and, and force people to test their bags. Because you know, right, you know that half of the bags that people are lugging around them, you know, it, there's no, the, the only way they're going to get those suckers in there is with a crowbar and a hydraulic press. And I would love to stand there, make them test it, and when it doesn't fit, I would like to be the guy that just says, no carry-on for you, you know? <laughs> um, I guess like this, <laughs> the Seinfeld version of the soup Nazi in, in an airport. So on our way home, uh, on Tuesday, we were in a departure lounge um, in Salt Lake City, and we were we were seated directly see, seated directly across from a family that had two very young girls, just adorably cute young girls. You know, close enough you're they're facing us. You could just kind of reach out and touch them with your toes. They're that close. And the two girls, one of them especially, I think, had reached her limit with airports and with flying. Both very young. 
Um, they were not at all happy about having to kind of wait. So mom and dad w were taking their turns pushing the girls on the strollers, just trying to keep them from, from going ballistic. And uh, so mom was off with one girl on the stroller, and it happened that while she was gone, the other girls started doing the potty dance. You know, like, daddy, daddy, I have to go, I have to go, I have to go. And so dad's kind of like looking around for mom, and she's nowhere to be found. So he picked her up and scooped her up and took off for the bathroom. And there it was in front of me. Seats full of unattended baggage. What to do, what to do. Well, truth was, I knew that he would be coming back to claim his bags. Because you can't leave your baggage behind, can you? But wouldn't it be nice if we could? Wouldn't it be nice if we could? A whole lot of baggage I would like to leave behind. I can think through certain days, months, probably even a couple years that I would like to have redacted from my life history. There are fears and disappointments that I would love to be done with. Uh, there are failures and mistakes that I can't quite let go of. And I know, I know people will point out correctly the truism that we learn most from our failures, and that's true, we do. But when I think about my failures, I realize that my learning from them has come with a cost, right? My learning has hurt people. Some of my learning has ruined relationships. And I wish I could learn another way. So I find myself wishing that I could take advantage of the magic of unattended baggage. I wish I could fill a suitcase with all of my life's garbage and just leave it at an airport somewhere and let the security guys get out to a field and just blow it up and be done with it. Or maybe there's another way. Maybe there's another way. Uh, a better way. So I want to take you to the book of Revelation. This, what we're going to read, is actually the, this is the center chapter of the book of Revelation, the way Revelation is organized. That means it may be, in some ways, the single most important chapter, Revelation chapter 12. It's the hinge chapter where everything in this book is going to change. And I'm going to read the whole chapter, Revelation chapter 12. I would really encourage you, even though we can follow on the screens, I'd encourage you to, you know, look at your own Bible when we're done talking because just for my sake and I think for yours, there are some things that would really help you to see as we work our way through this. So this is a bizarre book. If you've been here, it's a, it's a book written with all kinds of symbols and meaning. So it's bizarre. Um, it's a vision that John had and he's writing it down. And this is what John saw and wrote about in Revelation 12. Then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. I saw a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet, and with a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant, and she cried out because of her labor pains and the agony of giving birth. Then I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, with seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept away one-third of the stars in the sky, and he threw them to the earth. He stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. She gave birth to a son who was to rule all nations with an iron rod. And her child was snatched up away from the dragon, and he was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where God had prepared a place for her for 1260 days. Then there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels, and the dragon lost the battle. And he and his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, 
the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to earth with all of his angels. And then a loud voice shouting across the heavens, it has come at last, salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth. The one who accuses them before our God day and night, and they have defeated him by the blood of the lamb and by their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who live in the heavens rejoice. But terror will come on the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you in great anger, knowing that he has a little time. When the dragon realized that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, but she was given two wings like those of a great eagle so she could fly to the pr place prepared for her in the wilderness. There she would be cared for and protected from the dragon for a time, times, and a half time. Then the dragon tried to drown the woman with a flood of water that flowed from his mouth, but the earth helped her by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that gushed out from the mouth of the dragon. And the dragon was angry at the woman and declared war against the rest of her children, all who keep the commandments and maintain their testimony for Jesus. Then the dragon took his stand on the shore beside the sea. Now, because Revelation is such a bizarre book full of symbols and, you know, there's no way we can have the time to work our way through all the symbols, but let me just... Uh, allow me to kind of set the table a little bit and fill you in a little bit about what's going on. Because if you're new to our jaunt through Revelation or if, um, you know, you, you don't remember what we've been talking about, um, this, this book of Revelation um, is a book, it, really it's a book about Jesus. It is a book all about Jesus. And if, if we had the same experience that John had when John in the beginning of this book had this vision of Jesus if we had the same experience of John, we would do the exact same thing that John did. We would be on our knees in front of the Jesus that John saw because the Jesus that John saw is the victorious Jesus, the Jesus in front of whom the Bible tells us someday every knee will bow and every tongue confess that this is Jesus Christ, the Lord of all the earth. Now, John, however, um, Although it's all about Jesus, the book that he's written is this really bizarre book. It's written using all kinds of signs and symbols. And the difficulty we have with Revelation, this is where we often get kind of messed up. The goal is not to visualize the symbols or the signs. There's nothing really wrong with that. You can do that. But the goal isn't to picture them. The goal is to understand them. That's what you do with symbols. You try to understand their meaning. So when I read for you from this chapter, Revelation 12, the center chapter of the book, um, there are three actors in, in this chapter, three actors. Uh, two of them, two of the actors, John actually calls them signs or symbols. He often does that in the book. He, he, he's, he's very obvious about it. He doesn't hide it. He often says, I'm writing in signs or writing in symbols. And two of them, he does that. He says, these are symbols. Now, I know that in our translation, if you're reading the same one I read, uh, nowhere did, did you see the word sign or symbol. So I want to show you this, because um, what I read, if you look at verse 1 and 3, if you still have your Bibles, my version said this, I witnessed an event of great significance. That was there twice. Um, and I'll, I'm just going to be honest with you, you don't need to remember this isn't all that important, except that I know many of you, you enjoy kind of insight into the language of the Bible. So although this won't be on the quiz, you don't have to remember it, um, just some insight into the language of the Bible. The, the words that John wrote when in English our Bible says, I witnessed an event of great significance, the actual words were, I witnessed a, a mega simeon. Those are the two words, a mega simeon. And you, if you take those two words apart, um, the word mega, it should be obvious, right? It's, it's, it, mega has come into our English language. It means mega, you know? Uh, it means great. It means supersized. It means huge. The word simeon means sign or it means symbol, sign or symbol. So what John says literally is, I witnessed a great sign. I witnessed a supersized sign. And he uses that two times of two out of the three actors that are in this drama. 
And the first time he uses it is for that pregnant woman. He says, I witnessed a great sign. He says, I saw this woman who was pregnant and about to get birth. Now, just for the sake of time, we don't have time to work our way through all the symbols describing this woman. Um, I think it's, you know, most of us, um, if, if you've been around church at all or if you know the Christmas story, when, it, when in the Bible you see a woman about to give birth, who do we think of immediately? Mary, right? So obviously this great sign is Mary. But it, this, it is much, much more than Mary. It's not just Mary. It's a whole lot more. Because there are these bizarre symbols in Revelation 12 used to describe her. Clothed in the sun, the moon beneath her feet, a crown of 12 stars on her head. Uh, we don't have time to work our way through those. But just, and I know I'm talking fast, but I have to get through this. So if you didn't have your caffeine, you're out of luck. Because um, uh, I did. But I promise you I'll slow down. I'll tire out. Okay? Um, Sorry if you feel like, <laughs> I, I, I see some of you going, <laughs> I just know that there's a lot to cover. So uh, anyway, those signs, the, the sun, the moon beneath your feet, the 12, the crown of 12 stars, those are all Old Testament symbols, Genesis 37, etc. And the 12 always represents either the 12 apostles or it represents the 12 tribe of, of, of Israel. All of those signs are meant to say this is not just Mary. What it really is, is saying is that this woman represents all of God's people, the entirety of God's people, and what God is doing in history through his people to get to this exact moment in time. So this pregnant woman, this great sign, it includes Mary, but it is so much more than Mary. It's everything that God has been doing in history through his people to get to this point in time. And it starts all the way back in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3.15, when God has to confront the serpent who caused so much damage in the Garden of Eden. And God says to this serpent in Genesis chapter 3.15, he curses him and he says, I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. But one from her offspring will crush your head even as you strike his heel. And ever since that moment, way, way back in the beginning, God has relentlessly, relentlessly been working through his people in the events of history to get right here where a single woman gives birth to a single baby boy. That's the first actor in this drama. It's the first sign, this great sign, a woman about to give birth, meaning all of God's people and what he's doing through them leading to this moment in time. The second actor, John doesn't call this one a great sign, but the second actor is the baby who gets born. I think this one is very easy. It's very obvious. The baby is Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. And if you doubt that, we know it because John simply says when this baby is born, he is destined to rule all nations with an iron rod or an iron scepter. And all through the Bible, that iron scepter, it's a king symbol, it's a symbol of a king, and it always refers to Jesus, the Messiah in the Bible. So we know the baby is Jesus. The third actor, when John says the third time, I saw a great sign in heaven, the third actor is the red dragon, this great red dragon, described with, he has multiple horns and multiple heads and he has crowns, all of which means, to kind of cut to the chase, all of which means that this great dragon does indeed possess fearsome power, fearsome power. And John actually, he leaves no doubt about this red dragon because he tells us in verse 9 who this is. He says, the great dragon is the ancient serpent. And then he says, he's Satan or the devil. And he uses both of those words. Now, let me, again, just for those of you who enjoy this kind of stuff, let me give you a little bit of trivia about this. John uses on purpose both of those words in verse 9. He says, the great dragon is Satan and the devil. Uh, and just so you know, uh, here's what those words mean. The word Satan is actually a Hebrew word. It's come into English, but it's a Hebrew word. So every time you say the word Satan, you're saying a Hebrew word. And it's a Hebrew word that, that simply means enemy or adversary. You can use it for people. It, it sometimes is in the Bible used for, for human enemies that we have, but that's what it means. So what we're being told is, you know, this Satan, in this, in this sense, it's a Hebrew word, means enemy adversary, and it means that this being, this great red dragon, sim symbolizes a person, a, a being, who is a thorough enemy of God and of God's people. In other words, 
he hates everything to do with God. Everything that God loves, he hates. Every person that God loves, he hates. He's the enemy. He's the adversary of God. That's what the word means, Satan. The second word that he uses is the word devil. In Greek, you probably have heard this word too. In Greek, it's the word diabolos, which is somewhat familiar to us. Um, in the word devil is a, is, an, is a word that means accuser or slanderer. He's a slanderer or accuser. And if you think about it, isn't that exactly what Satan was doing uh, in that old book of Job? Um, do you remember the story of Job? There are those opening chapters where the Satan appears in the front of God, in the throne room of God. And what's he doing in those opening chapters? He is accusing, he is slandering Job to God. He is saying to God, Job, God, that, 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 that character Job that you like so much, he's not who you think he is. He's a phony. He's only with you because you are so good to him. Make him suffer a little bit and he will curse you like a drunken sailor. He's a BSer, this Job guy. He has fooled you. That's all he is. And God, if you need to treat people like cotton candy to keep them on your side, what a crock you are. What a crock you are. That's the devil. That's what he does. He's the accuser. He's the slanderer. So those are the three characters in this story, these signs. There's the woman, the great sign, who represents not just Mary, but she represents all of God's people from Eve leading up to this specific moment. And then there's the baby who is the Messiah, Jesus. And then there's the great red dragon who is the enemy of God, and he is the accuser of his people. Now, those are the three actors. In what I read for you, and this is not clear in our Bibles, but this, there's actually three separate visions. And in the language of the Bible, it, it becomes very clear. There are three separate visions. Or think of them kind of like three acts in a, in, a in, a, in a drama or in a play. And here are the three visions. We'll go through these one at a time. The first vision, if, if you've got your Bible open, the first vision or the first act is in verses 1 to 6. And like if you're a note taker and want to bracket it or make notes, whatever, you can do that. Because it's kind of important to know that there are three visions. The first one is verses 1 to 6. And in verses 1 to 6, in the verse, first, this first vision, there is a war that begins. And the war begins here in verses 1 to 6. And the war begins when a baby is born. And in this drama that's played out for us, the drama that we read for us, when the baby is born, this enormous red dragon crouches in front of the woman, hoping to and planning to devour this baby, to kill the baby when it's born. Now, if you know the Christmas story, and if you know how this vision played out on earth in life, um, you know what happened when the baby was born. You remember the story about Herod, who had his mind focused on killing the baby, playing out on earth what John was seeing in heaven. And Herod, who was king of Israel at the time, um, had this plot to kill the baby. He failed in killing this one, but we know horribly that he succeeded in running his sword through um, all of the cribs in Bethlehem because of this plot, the viciousness, the violence of what's going on. Now, this vision ends in verses 1 to 6. In verses 1 to 6, the vision actually ends with this baby being born. And although it's not clear to us, the baby, by verse 6, the baby is full grown. And the Bible talks about he's snatched from earth and he's taken back to heaven. He's taken back to God's throne in heaven, um, which simply means um, that this vision, and again, if you can keep in mind, this is written in symbols. It's not meant to give us details. It means that that vision in verses 1 to 6, there are no details, but it means that that vision is covering the entire life of Jesus. He gets born, he lives, and then he returns to his father. By the end of verse 6, Jesus is back with his father. That's his entire life. So vision one covers the entire life of Jesus, although there's no detail. Born, lives, returns to his father. Now, just a quick comment, because this is important. Even though there are no details given about the life of Jesus, 
because John is presenting this in a way that he's telling us this vision covers his entire life, you and I are to understand that John is saying that the entire life of Jesus matters in this war against the enemy. His entire life, every event of his life matters. Every single thing that Jesus did in his lifetime was part of this war between God and the enemy. The whole life of Jesus, John is saying, all of it contributes to what will be the eventual victory of the enemy. That means the obedience of Jesus. When it was blisteringly hard to do, it mattered. That means that the refusal of Jesus to retaliate and to lash out against his enemies, it mattered. It means that the unconquerable willingness of Jesus to love, even to love his enemies, it matters in the eventual victory over his enemies. It means that the practice of Jesus to meet brute power with another kind of power, to overcome the power of evil with the power of good, it matters. It means that the refusal of Jesus, even for a single moment, his refusal to disobey the Father and deviate from the Father's will, it mattered. His refusal for even a moment to hate matters. He remained his entire life long the perfect example of a free man, a man who had zero chains, who carried no baggage in his whole life. It mattered. He remained for his entire life uncontaminated from the things that contaminate us, pride, greed, envy, lust. He remained for his entire life uncompromised by the things that compromise us, selfishness, pettiness, cheating, lying, uncompromised his whole life. So even though, even though his entire life is lived in a battle, from the moment of his birth till the very end, he is constantly in a battle with the bad guy. From the very moment of his life, his whole life is part of this history in which ultimately the enemy is going to be defeated. So that's the first act in this, this drama. The baby gets born, the baby lives, and the baby returns to his father. No details, but it's the first act. Now, the second act is in verses 7 to 12 in your Bibles. And in the second act, it actually opens up with that sentence, and there was war in heaven. The second act is all about the war. Now, it ends, and I know I read it you know, a while ago, but it, it ends with the enemy's defeat. And the enemy, Satan, gets banned from heaven eternally, permanently, and that will matter in a minute. But what's really important about this section, um, and really through the whole book of Revelation, is it's important for you to understand kind of how history gets told in Revelation. And here's what I mean. When we tell history, usually we tell history in a, like a succession of events. You know, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and this happened. But in the book of Revelation, history is told in an entirely different way. And to understand this second act, and even the third, you have to have in your brain how history gets told in Revelation. So stick with me on this, even though this is going to sound really stupid for a couple seconds. So how many of you remember overhead projectors? Okay, good. Um, overhead projectors for a while were like the cutting edge of information technology, right? We thought they were really cool. Um, and one of the cool things about overhead projectors is, do you remember what we put on them? What we call them? Transparencies? Yeah. With transparencies, you could actually layer transparencies to create, through a succession of layers, you could create one single picture. Remember, like you could do that? You could, if you wanted, you could start with a bottom layer that might show just the grid of a city, and then you could put another transparency on top, and you know, then that would fill in the houses. Maybe put another one on and that would fill in the trees. Maybe put another one on and that would fill in the people. So you could use multiple layers to tell one picture, right? Everybody got that? So in the book of Revelation, that's how history gets told, in layers. Not in a succession of events, 
but in layers. And over and over, John will keep coming back really to the same story and just putting different layers on it. Not telling a series of events, but telling the same event over and over and over by putting it on layers. So the first layer for us in Revelation 12, the first layer was vision one. And vision one is simply with no details, just the life of Jesus. He's born, he lives, he returns to the Father. That's layer one in our story, the life of Jesus. Vision two is not a new story. It's simply John putting another layer over that one. And he's going to fill in some of the details about the life of Jesus. So the second vision, when John says there was war in heaven and he talks about it, it's not a new story. It's another layer over top of the life of Jesus which means vision two is simply adding to vision one. In other words, this war in heaven that starts in verse seven and goes through verse 12, it's not a new thing separate from the life of Jesus. It's just another layer to describe what Jesus accomplished in his life. So what did Jesus accomplish in his life to defeat the enemy? Well, let me show you something. Again, you know, if you have your Bible, in Revelation 12, in verses 7 to 12, I don't know if you caught it, but the moment that the war was won and the enemy was cast out of heaven, the moment that that happens, all of heaven breaks out in a victory parade and a victory song. And it starts with the at last, at last, at last. Victory has come at last. For, now get these words, it matters. Remember what I told you what the word uh, devil means, the accuser? For the accuser of our brothers and sisters. That's who Satan is, the enemy. That's who the devil is, the accuser. He has been thrown out of heaven and down to earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night, and they have defeated him. How? By the blood of the lamb. They've defeated him by the blood of the lamb. What's that refer to? The cross. The cross. Now, every moment of Jesus' life, every moment contributes to his victory. But what we have to understand about victory is that every single victory also comes at a single moment. It always does. There's always a day, there's always an hour, there's always a moment when the victory gets won. And according to Revelation 12, the defeat of God's enemy, the defeat of our enemy, comes at a moment, and that's the moment. It comes at the cross. Now, my guess is we've kind of learned to think of the cross as the defeat of Jesus and the resurrection as the victory. That's the way we think about it. Well, the resurrection was proof of the victory, but the actual victory is there. The victory is at the cross. That's when God won, the cross. Jesus knew this and he understood it very well. He knew what his mission in life was. Although every moment of his life contributed, he knew what he was here to do. Every single author of a book in the New Testament about Jesus, we call in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every single moment tells us that there was a single moment when Jesus put the, the cross as the center point of his mind and the cross became his focus from that moment forward. Every gospel writer says it. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's all very similar. Every single one of those authors tells us that there was this moment when Jesus was conversing with his apostles and asking them, who do you think I am? And all three gospel writers tell us that there was a moment when, when they got it. And Peter said, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, 
to the Son of God. And all three gospel writers tell us that at that moment, Jesus began to tell him what he was here to do. He was here to die. And from that moment on, the cross becomes his purpose. Luke, in Luke chapter 9, verse 52, at the moment for Luke, Luke has this wonderful sentence when after Peter confesses that he's the Christ, the Son of God, Luke, has, Luke says this, that Jesus set his face resolutely toward Jerusalem, the cross. Nothing would stop Jesus from the cross. He knew his whole life, every moment of his life, he knew was moving him towards this moment, this moment of victory, and he knew it. Which is why Paul, when Paul was writing some of his letters to churches, Paul has this, Paul was able to summarize all of his message, all of his preaching in four simple words. He said, we preach Christ crucified. That's his message. We preach Christ crucified. That's why when Paul wrote a letter to some followers of Jesus um, in the book, it's in the book of Colossians, it's a letter. They were struggling with this, so he explained it to them this way. He says to them, in Colossians chapter 2, I think it is, he says, you are as good as dead because of your sins. Then God made you alive with Christ, and he forgave your sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us. No accuser. No accuser anymore. He canceled the record of the charges against us, and he took it away by nailing it to the cross. And in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities, the enemy, the accuser. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Sin is our problem. It's the baggage we carry. All that crap we trail behind us, all of our baggage, sin is the problem. And it has to be killed. It has to be left as unattended baggage and taken out in the field somewhere and blown up. So, for example, you guys have heard, you know, these two faces? These are the two faces, for whatever reason, of the college admissions scandal. Uh, Felicity Huffman and Lori Laughlin seem to be, you know, the, the two faces, but there are, there are dozens and dozens and others of of super wealthy people who pay big bucks, big bucks from tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands to several million dollars to get their kids into some of the best colleges. They faked sports scholarships. They cheated on entrance exams. They paid wrong people to go in and take SATs for the right people. They paid off admissions counselors. They bribed coaches. Quite a few people right now are losing their jobs in colleges in disgrace and humiliation because of what I did. There are some kids right now who now everybody knows their parents cheated to get them in, and they have been exposed, and they've been humiliated. There are people going to jail. I think I recall reading that there's been at least one suicide. It is just a royal mess. So when this came out a couple weeks ago, I was reading up on the scandal. I was reading online a New York Times article. There was an admissions expert who uh, worked, is working with the investigators and trying to help them understand the whole thing. And the New York Times article you know, explained how it all happened. And then the very last sentence of the article, they quoted this admissions counselor expert. Um, they quoted him, and this is what he said. This was the last sentence. It is now painfully obvious the system is broken. <laughs> no, it's not. No, it's not. The system isn't broken. The system works just fine. It's people who are broken. People broke the system. The system didn't break anybody. People broke the system. The system didn't leave us down. People did. 
in their sin-driven greed, in their sin-driven craving for pride and status. Sin ruins people and it breaks people. Our problem is sin. Mine is. Mine is. And it has to be killed. And it has to be defeated. And the message of our faith is, it was. It was. It was killed. It was defeated. Like unattended baggage, it was taken out on a hill and blown up. And it's dead. If you want to, you can access this. At the cross, God's enemy was soundly defeated, kicked out of heaven eternally, permanently. Our great accuser can never, ever, ever again do to you what he did to Job. He has zero ability to go before God and say of you, they're not who they think they are, God. And even if the accusations are correct and true, still the accuser cannot make them. Which is why one of the most triumphant chapters in the whole Bible, Romans chapter 8, Paul asks these questions. Who is there left to accuse you? Who? Who is there who will bring any charge against God's children? Then in Romans chapter 8, that same chapter, the very first sentence, one of my favorite, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Jesus took our baggage to the cross. It was nailed to the cross, and there it died. There it died. That's the second vision. Laid over top of the life of Jesus, there is victory, which takes us to the third vision. It's the last layer, verses 13 to 17. Woe. Woe to you, O earth, for the enemy has come down to you in great anger. Now, in the third vision, the woman is back. This symbol, this great sign. In the third vision, the enemy is trying to terrorize this woman and destroy her. And she says in this third vision, or the Bible says, that she has more children. And this horrific dragon wants to destroy her children. So again, just quickly to save some time to cut to the chase, if in the first vision, the woman with the child represents all of God's people from Eve up until that moment, in the third vision, when she has more children, whom do you think those children are? Us. Us. The family of God now, all who follow Jesus from this moment on, we're followers of Jesus. And in the third vision, the enemy rages against us. Although he's been soundly defeated, there's no hope for victory. In the third vision, John says, in his defeat, he rages against the people of God. Like Saddam Hussein in Iraq, who raged in his defeat and who blew up oil wells just to make terror. Like Hitler, who raged in his defeat when the Russians and the Allies were surrounding Berlin, and he gave pitchforks and axes 
to young German boys and said, do whatever you can to kill anybody who comes in this city because he raged in his defeat in the same way this enemy is raging in defeat. And he's God's enemy still here and he's our enemy. But follow this, think through this. If our enemy is the accuser, the slanderer, and if he can no longer accuse us to God, he can't. There's no access to heaven. He's defeated. He cannot accuse us to God. So in his rage, to whom does he accuse us? To ourselves. To ourselves. He whispers his hatred for us to our own souls. Um, NPR has a, a very popular radio show called This American Life. One time a few years ago, they did an hour-long episode that was called The Devil Inside Me. And they did a whole bunch of interviews in which they asked ordinary people, it, you know, there was no Christian agenda to this, but they just asked ordinary people if they ever felt like they were under the spell of an inner voice and if this inner voice held them in bondage to unwanted thoughts. And the host of this show, when he was, you know, explaining the whole thing, he said, you know, when I asked this question, it was like people had been waiting their whole lives long for somebody to ask them this question. So people were asked, do you ever feel like you're in bondage to an inner voice? And one guy said, oh yeah, I certainly know the voice you're talking about. Another said, yeah, the voice is irresistible, always. I'm in thrall of that voice. The woman said, I'm totally out of control. It's, got, it, it's totally out of control. It's got this life of its own. I can't tame it anymore. Another woman said, I actually have a name for the voice. I call it Stan. Stan is the guy who tells me to have an extra glass of wine. Stan is the guy who tells me to smoke. One woman who just got engaged said she hears the voice say, you better try your hardest to make sure he doesn't take the ring away. Because he's going to find out the truth about you, how much you suck. So you better distract him with a really thin, perfect body. The interview, at the end of the interview, the host always asked each person, he always asked, do you feel like the voice is winning? And all the time, all the time, people said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, it's winning. The final interview just before the show ended, the last interview of the show, the host said, so is it winning right now? And the man said, right now? Yeah. I think I'm in some serious trouble, to be honest. <laughs> oh, my. We only knew. We only knew. We were listening to the whispers of a raging but soundly defeated enemy. If we wanted to, all we would have to know is that the baggage has been nailed to the cross. It's been taken out to the top of a hill somewhere and blown up and it doesn't exist. It's dead. 500 years ago, Martin Luther a guy who just turned the whole history of the world upside down, Martin Luther knew that the people in his time didn't have access to scriptures in their own language. They didn't know it. They couldn't read it. So Luther knew that some of the great truths of scripture, no one knew. And he knew that the people in his day were enthralled. They were captured by that voice and they couldn't combat it because they didn't know scripture. He couldn't hand them Romans 8.1, for example. There is now... Therefore, no condemnation for, who, for those in Christ. So Luther took bar songs and he put different words to bar songs 
so that people could have truth in their own language and they could sing it. And he taught them to sing. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. If we could only know, we will not fear. So, the baggage you might have trailing behind you, how about we leave it unattended at the cross? So what I want to invite you to do is we take communion this morning, before we take communion, actually as a process. Here's what I want to invite you to do for the first part of communion, to receive just the bread. You all have gotten a little puzzle piece. What I'm going to invite you to do, if you want to, is uh, we'll, I'll have one usher, Steve Miller, is going to stand at the front. And just at a row at a time, he'll kind of guide the row, guide the row starting at front. At row to front, just come out, and you can walk up to one of four tables. There are four of them with markers. And on this side, the white side of your puzzle piece, I want to invite you just to write down your baggage, whatever it is, just a word, a phrase, whatever. And then because this is anonymous, um, if you want, when you're done writing, flip it over so that nobody else can read it. But on, on these tables, write down your baggage, whatever it is. We were going to nail it to the cross, but I realized we don't have four hours left. Um, so to cut to the chase, um, we'll invite you all up, go to a table, go at a time, write down your baggage. And then there are communion trays at the end of each table. This is where I want to invite you to get your bread. So we'll take the lids off, just grab a piece of bread, eat it on your own when you get back to your seat. We'll just be doing this ourselves. Now, I will say, if you don't want to do this, that's fine. You don't have to participate in this way. Steve will have a tray of bread. And if you choose or if you cannot walk up to the front, uh, Steve will serve bread to those of you who remain seated in the aisles if you want to participate. Those of you who don't want to participate in communion, that's fine. You just pass the, the blade, just sit there, whatever. You don't have to pre-participate. But um, I'm going to do this. I'll grab the things. And then Steve, I'm going to ask Steve to come to the front get the plate of bread and um, your piece up. I will say too, just because um, we're going to be using these over the next couple of weeks. Um, as I said, it's all anonymous, but if you want to participate in any way, just if you would, just leave your puzzle piece on your seats blank just because we need some more of these in the weeks ahead and we want to save some time in making them. Everybody know what we're doing? Does that make sense? So let me pray and then we'll move forward. God, um, I, I pray for us, for myself, even though the victory's been won, God, we still trail behind us baggage, and we want to leave it unattended at the cross. We want it to die. We want it nailed there. So, God, I pray that in the next few moments, you give us a level of honesty and a level of freedom as we remember what you were doing in the cross, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. And I will say while you're doing this, there are four pens at each table, so multiple people can be up here at a time um, to do this.
to keep coming if this other side over here. Is there anyone uh, in the lobby or anybody seated here that has not had a chance to do this would like to? Uh, has everybody here that didn't do this that got a piece that didn't get a piece of bread? Is there anyone that wants bread that has not? Well, the cup we are going to serve as we always do. I'm going to ask uh, ushers to come to the front and 
then what I wanted you to do is when you get a cup, if you're participating, just take a cup, hold on to it, and we'll commune together. We'll take the cup together in just a few moments. And I forgot to tell you, but when you leave, there are garbage cans at all the exits. Your used cups can go in those. Everyone receive the cup. A real quick uh, Wyoming story. We, um, we met Aaron, Dan, Macy, and Tucker in Salt Lake City, and the very first thing that happened when we met at the hotel was Aaron and Dan took Macy's car seat out of their car and put it in our car <laughs> so that Macy got to travel with Grammy and Papa. What we didn't recognize, however, was that uh, Aaron, thinking that she might need a little bit of distraction, is Aaron had gotten Macy a box of really cool Band-Aids, because Macy loves Band-Aids. So the moment she got in our car, Macy was back there taking Band-Aids apart and sticking them all over his arm. And I said, Macy, do you have a boo-boo? She said, oh, yes. You know, and she's showing us these boo-boos, and we're looking, and there's no boo-boo there. And that's actually genetic. She gets that from her mom. Um, <laughs> Because her mom, Erin, used to have, like, she might have a tiny little scratch. And she was like, oh, it's gushing blood. It's gushing blood. And she would put a Band-Aid on. And what was interesting, you know, is that Macy had these band, these, she had boo-boos that nobody saw. But she was putting uh, Band-Aids on these boo-boos to cover them up. So what I wrote down, uh, nobody sees. Um, you don't know. Um, in part, I wrote, I just want to be free uh, from guilt. Um, I think of Psalm 51 where David said, restore to me the joy of my salvation. And that's what I wrote. Um, I just want joy again. I want to be free from guilt. Nobody knows, nobody sees, except him. And even though nobody knows or nobody sees, there's a Band-Aid from the Father, and he can put it on a boo-boo that only I see. I don't know what you wrote, 
I don't know if it's confidential. I don't know if you flipped it upside down. I don't know if anybody else knows. But even if there is no one who knows but you, the Father does. And he has a Band-Aid to put on the boo-boo that no one else sees. And the Band-Aid is his cross and the blood of Jesus, which covers us from all our sin. So as we take and drink the cup, remember that the Father knows, and even if no one else does, he wants to cover what only you see. So take and drink, remembering the shed blood of Jesus. Let's pray, and then I'm going to invite you to stand to sing. Father, I thank you for the cross. I thank you for the victory won for all of heaven and for all of earth, this victory won at the cross. God, I confess that it doesn't always make sense to me. I can't always do the math. But it's truth in your word that for forgiveness to occur, something has to die. And it did. God, I thank you that we get to experience the benefit of forgiveness forever, freedom from accusation forever because of the cross. Pray, God, that that would give us joy again. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.